Hi, and welcome to Relatable, a podcast dedicated to simplifying the complexities of modern everyday relationships. What if being great at relationships was easy for you? How would that change your life? How would that impact the people you love? I'm Fiona Lukies. Join me as I pull back the curtain on how easy it is for you to up your relationship game so you can enjoy effortless relationships with anyone in your life and become more relatable. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Relatable. I have an amazing guest for us today. It's going to be a real treat. I have Joseph Bailey joining me all the way from the USA this afternoon where he is and morning here. And I, I've been wanting to have Joe on the show for quite a while. Joe has a wealth of knowledge in the area of addictions, and I know that this is a really big issue for a lot of you listening to the podcast. I get a lot of people emailing me and asking me to do a podcast on addiction. So I'm thrilled to have Joe with us on the call today. Welcome, Joe. It's good to be back. Back down under. Back down under. As I mentioned to you before, I, you know, got to visit your wonderful country many years ago and did a program in Perth for the, the National Addiction Conference there. I gave a talk at that and said some embarrassing things that inappropriately because I don't know the, the lingo in, in Australia. <laughs> so John Woods was very embarrassed, but uh, I, su- I I made it through. John suffered, but I made it through <laughs> and also in, in Sydney. So I really enjoyed my time there. Yeah. Well, how, how long ago was that? I don't know for sure, but I th- it was probably around the year 2000, I, I spoke about the serenity principle and slowing down to the speed of life. I've read them, highly recommend them, brilliant books, but sorry, keep going. Not, but I think about that time, slowing down to the speed of love was coming out. Oh, sorry, slowing down to the speed of love is what I have in the serenity principle. Yes, that's right. They're the two books that yeah. I have. Big pardon. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. It was around around that time in the early 2000s. I'd love to you, you to kind of speak, Joe, about you know, I know that you've been working in the area of addictions for, for many, many like decades, and you've done some amazing work in that area. What, what do you think for someone listening who's in a relationship with someone with an addiction? And, you know, obviously addictions come in many forms. And as I see in my practice, it's, you know, parents with children with the addiction or partners, or maybe it's the, it's the person themselves coming to terms with the fact that that they do have an addiction that is impacting their family. What would you say or what advice would you give to someone who is in a relationship or dealing with someone they're very close to in the throes of that? Well, first of all, maybe just to let you know on a personal level, most of us in in our country anyway, grew up in a home where there was alcoholism, either in the immediate family or extended family. And in my case, my, uh, Many aunts and uncles, cousins, siblings um, suffered with uh, some form of addiction or another. I kind of grew up as a fixer. <laughs> you know, I wanted to save everybody because, I don't know, it's just my personality. It was maybe my early vocation. I just, I wanted to make people happy. I always wanted to cut the tension in the room through humor, through distraction. You know, I had all kind of typical growing up in an addictive system. Everybody finds ways to kind of cope with it. Some people rebel, some people became, become people pleasers, other people 
become addicted themselves. Others become codependent where they're attracted to people with an addiction in the hopes that they can do what they couldn't do with their father, you know, with maybe this guy, they can do it. And so I had all those patterns and that's probably why I became a psychologist. And I didn't plan to go in the addiction field, but my first job as a psychologist in my internship, I was assigned to be the head of the, the addiction program. And I knew nothing about it, but I fell in love with alcoholics and drug addicts. I just loved working with them and probably just my own habits, my own patterns. I, I was naturally attracted to them, but I, I ended up working in that field as a result of that and worked in the area of prevention. And then I got very interested in, in family therapy and working with the families with people with addiction. And so I worked with Virginia Satira, a very famous family therapist. She was our consultant at a place I worked called the Johnson Institute, which was an international training center for addiction. And I was head of the family school for that. So I've really been immersed in working with families. So that's just a, a little bit of a background about me. And then I learned about the three principles psychology after being in the addiction field for about 10 years. And at that point, I was pretty burned out because I was so stressed trying to fix everybody. <laughs> and my first spouse had an addiction issue, and so I was an Al-Anon. So I was really well trained to be in the addiction field from a personal level as well as a professional level. So having said all that, probably the most important thing for me personally, what I had to learn was that other people didn't make me feel the way I feel. Nobody can put a feeling into me. My feelings don't come from the people I'm in a relationship with or the people that are having an issue. My feelings come from my thoughts about them in the way I'm, I'm thinking about them. That for me is, is the most important thing because I think when you're around someone who ha is suffering with an addiction, naturally you, you feel bad for them. You feel sad about it. You feel angry about it. You feel a lot of different emotions. But if they just change, I'd feel better. Mm. And that's the big misunderstanding with someone who has codependency or who has habits of thinking. They think if, if I can just get them to change, I'll be fine. And that's kind of the bottom line in the recovery process for someone in a relationship with someone who suffers with an addiction is to realize your own power to create your own human experience so that you're able to be in relationship with someone who's suffering with an addiction without you having to suffer with their suffering. That you can at least be in a more loving place, a more accepting place, a, a wiser place so that you can see with your own wisdom and your own insights, when to set limits and boundaries, when to act in trying to help and when to, to let go and back off. When we're operating out of our fears and insecurities and that misunderstanding that if they just change, I'd feel good. Once you, you separate from that thought, then your wisdom comes to the surface, your resilience, and you have your peace of mind. You have your own bubble that you're creating of your psychological reality. Mm -hmm. And when you see that, 
it allows you to relate in a healthier way. Sometimes that means you temporarily end the relationship or you step back from it. Sometimes it means you confront the person. Sometimes you just love them and don't do anything. But your inner intelligence that we call wisdom or insight will guide you to what you need to uniquely do in your particular relationship and circumstance. And that's what, you know, and I think that's a lot of what Elanon and programs like that are, are about, are that you, you can't fix other people. You're not responsible for their addiction. You didn't cause it, you didn't create it, and you can't change it. The more you're able to see that, the more you're able to find your own peace of mind, regardless of what the other person is doing. Now, it doesn't mean you necessarily stay with them. Sometimes the right decision is to separate or to get out of the relationship. Other times it's appropriate to to hang in there and to stay in there and to seek help. So I don't know if that is a, the answer you were looking for, but that's that's what I would say. That's kind of the bottom line is yeah. knowing where your your feelings, your reactions are coming from is not from them and what they're doing, but from how you're holding that, how you're thinking about that, how you're letting that affect you. And it's innocent and you can't help but react to an alcoholic or a drug addict when you're living with them and they lie to you or they come home stumbling drunk or they end up in jail or whatever. You're going to have emotional reactions. You're going to have all kinds of thoughts of anger and frustration and, ah, you know, I want to just wring their neck, you know, or whatever. But once you realize where that feeling is coming from, it helps you just to, ah, that's right. Okay. Once you calm down, you can see things more objectively, more clearly. You're going to be less reactive and less into trying to fix or blame or judge and more able to just um, love that person for who's in there underneath that addiction. You know, because the addiction covers up who the true self of that person is. And they start to think that's who they are. They hate themselves and that fuels the addiction. But when they can realize they're not their habit, they're not their habit of drinking or using, that that was their innocent attempt to try to alleviate their feelings. It's the same thing. They're thinking, if I, if I get high, I won't feel lonely. If I get high, I won't feel like a loser. If I get high, I alter my chemistry somehow, my feelings will at least get numbed and maybe feel positive. So that's why people seek out addictions in the first place is that they're trying to find a feeling from the outside that can only come from the inside. It's just part of your spirit. Well, thank you so much. I imagine that would be really helpful for so many people because I know that it can be bewildering and confusing if you are either the parent or the person living with or dealing with someone who has an addiction, knowing that you have some, because I know for many people, they feel very disempowered. It feels like it's bigger than them. And to know that you have an ability or you have some power where you can actually get some peace of mind or have some clarity of mind to see where your experience is coming from would be, would be huge for people. Because I imagine most people would feel like they're at the mercy of wherever the other person is yeah. and what, and what they're the, doing. the whole family tends to 
to see what, where's the alcoholic at now. And that determines where I'm at, at coping mechanisms, finding a coping mechanism. So some people withdraw, they just turn, go into a shell. That's their best coping mechanism that they can find. Some people get really angry and rebel or get violent. Other people try to fix and are just kind of a martyr and almost get secondary gain out of putting up with, oh, she's such a saint that she can put up with John's drinking, you know, and that kind of thing. But people are doing the best they can given their their understanding of how life works and how the mind works. And so these are natural, innocent behaviors that people develop. One story that comes to my mind, uh, a friend of ours whose son was alcoholic and he's now in recovery. When he was in the throes of his alcoholism and even as a little kid my friend would just hover over him constantly because he was a very anxious child and when he was very young his dad her husband died suddenly in his 40s of a heart attack very healthy runner went out for a run and never came back and just dropped dead and so it was a trauma for the family the daughter the son and of course his wife and so they were dealing with that at a very tender age. And, and so the son became a really anxious, almost phobic child, just really um, would sweat all the time. He was always really nervous and she was always being very protective of him. And, and as he got older, he discovered alcohol and that would calm him down. He became addicted to alcohol and became an alcoholic in his teens, late teens, 20s. And so she was constantly worried about him. And that was, it seemed like the loving thing. Of course, you're going to worry about your child. You see them self-destructive and worrying if he's going to get in a car accident and he's losing a job or he's not reaching his potential and just all of those cares and concerns that are quite understandable. But she didn't realize how much invisibly by worrying about him, she was sending a message that there was something the matter with him. And so he would internalize that. And his confidence is just in the toilet. So my wife and I had talked with her about this invisible, constant state of worry she was always in. Somehow she had a, in that conversation, she had a realization. She said, oh my God, that's all I ever think about is him. I'm addicted to thinking about him. What a burden I'm putting on him. I had no idea that it was affecting him that way. And so she had a, a realization there and she let go of the worry. She still loved him. She still cared about him. She, she just let go of the worry. She wasn't constantly checking on him and, are you okay, Aaron? You know, da-da-da-da. She kind of let go. And he had been through treatment, and a few treatments, and it relapsed. But the last one, after she had her realization as a mom, he just bloomed his confidence came back. He lived in a halfway house. He got a girlfriend. Normally, he was just working really kind of low-level construction jobs, but he got hired out of the blue of this little, small, budding, young scientific company, and he became the, the kind of the scientist mixing all the fertilizers that were natural fertilizers for marketing and stuff. And so he was kind of like the scientist there. And he did so well, he just kept getting promoted and raises, and he's just doing wonderful. But the invisible pressure of someone worrying about you 
was impacting him in invisible ways. And it was really impacting her. So that was her side of the coin, her yeah. part of the dance. She looked like a worried, concerned, loving mother. But in fact, she was putting out messages, you're not capable of, <laughs> she didn't mean that. That was the last thing she wanted to get across. But having fear for how he would do, he could feel that. It just fed his low self-esteem and his lack of confidence. And when that was removed, it just shifted the dynamic in the relationship. The recovery for the family member, and that's why in Al-Anon, they, they talk a lot about you can't fix him, you can't, you didn't cause it and you can't cure it. You know, it's all about you have to find your own peace of mind and all that. So that's true, but it, without an understanding of the principles and how thought works, that's a pretty tall order. <laughs> you can't just will yourself to do that. You have to insightfully recognize when you're thinking in a way that's taking you down and not judge yourself for it, but just, oh, that's what's happening. It's not about him. It's about me right now. And when you see that, it changes the way you see the other person and it changes whatever that invisible thing is that we call a relationship. Yeah, well, I, that's a great story. Thanks for sharing that, Joe, because I can only imagine for so many people, worry looks like love. Yeah. We see worry as love. That's what you do. If someone is struggling or going through a hard time, of course you would worry. I mean, it would seem unloving or unhuman, I would imagine, for many people to not do that. And I do see the impact of that with a lot of clients in my practice for various reasons, whether they're dealing with someone who has an addiction or not, that we do put that out there, seeing that as a loving thing. Yes. And actually, you're so right. You're sending innocently a very different message to the other person. I've had many people kind of realize what they're saying is, I can't be okay until you're okay. So can you, can you please hurry up and be okay? And then I can, I can relax. I can imagine that would have a huge impact on yeah. so many people who are going through. That was my habit too. You know, I grew up in a family where if you love someone, you worry about them. My mom always worried about all of his kids and then the grandkids and then the great grandkids and worried about her brothers and worried about everybody. And everyone thought she was a saint and she was just, she was a very loving person, but I associated that love with worry. It's funny. I was just on the, call with someone who's working with Gerald Jampolsky's son. He wrote, Love is Letting Go of Fear. I don't know if you've ever heard of that book. I have. I've read it. Yeah. Anyway, so she's working with him. And I, I love the title of that book. You know, when I heard that, just the title alone impacted me. But implied in that is love is not fear. It's what's left when you let go of the fear. There's the love. And True love or pure love is unconditional. You love them even if they are screwing up. It's not attached to controlling them. And that's another behavior of people in relationship without, that can be very controlling. Because if you believe that they have to change for you to feel better, you're going to try to control how they're acting and thinking and behaving. But it, it works the opposite. Once you find your own inner peace of mind, your own mental health, your own well-being, then you're a positive, loving, 
unconditionally loving influence. It shifts the atmosphere, the temperature in the relationship. So the pressure's off and in that pressure being off, people often have insight. And um, the agency I worked for, we did interventions, you know, where we would get the family together and confront the alcoholic. And, and it was very confrontive and read a list of all the things you've ever done that are bad and trying to kind of guilt them into going to treatment, basically. But then that evolved over time and they just worked with the family and they kind of learned the insight we've been talking about. They're not responsible for your feelings. You're creating that with how you're reacting to it. And you're not a bad person either, by the way. You just innocently did what you did because that's what you've always done or that's what your parents did or what you learned. But once you can see that and you get your freedom back to find your own well-being, your own serenity, then you're a positive influence in that system, in the family. And that makes more room for them to have more insight. At least it removes the barriers to it. And I love the way you're you're describing there's room for insight. For someone who's not heard that word before, the word insight, how would you describe that? Well, all of us have had insights. Out of the blue, I just realized blah, 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 blah. You know, I realized I was in love with that person. Or out of the blue, I remembered to stop by the store and pick up the dozen eggs that I just about forgot to do. Or out of the blue, it just occurred to me what I wanted to be when I grew up. All of a sudden, that that passion got ignited, and I knew I wanted to be a counselor. That was true for me. When I was 16, I just knew what I wanted to do was do this. And it just came from out of the blue. Out of the blue is another word for an insight. Sidney Banks used to say it was a sight from within. So our inner wisdom has clairvoyance. It has intuition. It's connected to everything. And so we have hunches. We have intuitive thoughts, inklings. Those are insights. But for much of my life, I just ignored them. Oh, that's ridiculous. It couldn't be that easy. Oh, who are you to think that you could ever do blah, blah, blah. I always thought I was terrible at public speaking. And I flunked public speaking in college, the only course I ever flunked, because I'd get so nervous. I also thought I couldn't carry a tune. I was non-musical, but I always wanted to be a rock star. (laughs) I played the drums, you know, if you don't have any talent, you play the drums. Um, My husband's a drummer. I don't know if he'd agree with you on that one. But when I was 60, I decided to learn to play the guitar. And I found that the only thing that was keeping me from doing it was these thoughts that I couldn't do it. The other day I wrote a song. I hadn't played guitar in a couple of years and I really wanted to get back into it. And so I said to my buddy, we're playing pool. And I said, he's a really good musician. He's talking about how much he's been playing his guitar. And I said, Dan, I really want to get back into playing guitar. Why don't you and I write a song together? I'll write the lyrics and and you write the music. I thought that'd get me back into it. He said, yeah, wow, that's really cool. So the next morning I wake up and I have this song in my head. I'll just read it to you here real quick. It just started with the first line. My mind is like a hurricane because I wanted to write a song about my new book. So this is what came out. Out of the blue, this is an insight. My wife and I laid in bed for three hours after I had this first thought, and we just went back and forth and wrote it down. And, and after three hours, we had this song. 
My mind is like a hurricane. I'm feeling out of control. My thoughts are overwhelming me, and I don't know where to go. I'm living life in the fast lane. It's driving me insane. Can't stop my thoughts from spinning. I'm lost inside my brain. My mind is like a hurricane, spinning out of control. I need to slow it down, but I don't know where to go. I'll find the eye of the hurricane. I know there's peace inside. I'll rest my mind in the calm and jump off this crazy ride. The eye of the hurricane is peace within my soul. It's mine to have and rest in, the calm that makes me whole. If my mind's like a hurricane, I can ride and tame its force, rest inside its eye, and stay within the source. When my thoughts start to whirl again and again, I now know how to stop them. I know to go within. My mind was like a hurricane. It was driving me insane. And now I see the eye inside me where I shall remain. Oh, I love that, Joe. That's beautiful. Beautiful. Oh, I love but that. My, my wife's the poet. She's, she's, she came, she's the one that knows how to rhyme it all. <laughs> I love that. And I, I love the way you've described <laughs> my mind that's how, like a hurricane. That's how our, our mind works. You know, it's like, yeah. wow, I really want to play guitar again. Then the next thought, this, this is how insight works. It just, the next thought was, hey, let's write a song together. So that's the inner intelligence of wisdom guiding us through one insight at a time. So that seed was planted when I went to bed. And this, the first thought in my mind when I woke up out of the blue, my mind is like a hurricane. I'm feeling out of control. And it was just boop, 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 boop. So that's how the mind works when it's open. Yeah. And I think as well, what is really important in what you're saying too, is we tend to, and I think that's just because of what the narrative is around personal development and change, that an insight is some sort of angel, like you're going to have some sort of ah, kind of moment from the heavens where everything's yeah. going to implode. Whereas insight can be really ordinary, but I think the word ordinary doesn't convey the beauty because it's very it, profound. It, it, is, it is ordinary. Yeah. It's like, Oh, wonder what I want to wear today. Oh, that's what I want to wear. And that can be an insight. I feel so good wearing that. Or, hmm, what do I want to eat? Oh, that's what I'll have. You know, or go to the refrigerator and nothing is there, but you put it all together in a new way, insightfully, and you created a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. So insight is just our innate intelligence because we're all part of the divine intelligence of all things. So a divine thought is another word for insight, but it's tailor-made for your life and your circumstances, moment to moment to moment. And when your mind is clear of habitual egoic thinking, there's room for insightful thinking. So we all have this inner guidance system that's guiding us and it's closer than a heartbeat. It's right there under our nose. Oh, that's a beautiful description, Joe. I love that. Thank you. Can I read you one more? Please. That I didn't write. My wife wrote this. And it's, my, it's, it's in the Slowing Down the Speed of Love book. So you have read this. Ah, okay. It's closer than a heartbeat. I speak not the language of the intellect that isn't my way. I travel the pathways of your nerves and enliven your senses. I construct the fibers of your dreams and walk the corridors of your mind. I am communication at the subtlest level, 
My thoughts are your true desires. I am in every corner of your experience, expressing and guiding. Hear me, and I will ease your pain. Respect me, and I will show you the way. Love me, and you will love yourself and all the world around you. Listen, I am the whisper in your feeling. My words are ever-present. Listen, the language of the experience. You have known it from birth. Listen, like an explorer in the wilderness, guided by the signals of nature, a turned leaf, a subtle yearning. My voice will become louder when magnified by your awareness. I speak through the body and well in emotion. I penetrate your dreams, fuel your desires. I am the essence, the driving force of your existence. Body, mind, spirit are all aspects of the whole. My language is simplicity beyond intellectual translations that judge, complicate, and define. I flow, I transform, I am before time. Catch me in the moment. I have all the answers. I cannot be saved for the future or confined in the brain. My environment is in the moment. It is there that I thrive. Do not worry, I'm in every moment, available at all times, closer than a heartbeat. Beautiful, Joe, and so true for us all, addiction or no addiction. I think it's important, and I'd love you to speak to, for people listening here, maybe you are the person with the addiction, you are, or you suspect that maybe you do have one and you perhaps you haven't gone to that step of acknowledging it or dealing with it yet. Maybe you're still in that moment of what's going on for me. Would you say in your experience, Joe, that people who are in that space, knowing their true nature, knowing where their experience is coming from, knowing that insight is possible, even with that going on for them. Would you say that's true for someone who is kind of looking down that pathway? Well, I think addiction is the innocent attempt to find your true self. We search outside of ourselves because we're trying to find a feeling of confidence or of love or peace of mind. And we think that if, oh, if I just get high, I'll, I kind of feel a glimpse of it. You know, I have a moment, you know, that one line of cocaine, that was it. I got to do that again. And then you start searching after that feeling. And of course you can't find it because it's not in the substance. Maybe your thoughts quieted down during using and it released what was inside you. So the purpose of addiction spiritually, psychologically is to take it to the end of a road that paints you into a corner where the only way out is up. The only way out is to change, to transform. That's what attracted me to recover alcoholics. They were some of the wisest, uh, happiest, most serene people I'd ever met because they, they'd been through hell and, and back. But life painted them in, into a corner where they realized they had no choice but to quit using. And it was in that surrender and that acknowledgement and that uh, receptivity that their mind opened up and it gave them all this, this experience that they found a true peace of mind, no strings attached. Addiction isn't because you're a bad person, a stupid person, uh, an evil person. 
it's an innocent attempt to find wholeness, to find unification with your true essence. In AA, they call that a spiritual awakening, but it's, it's a transformation. It's a realignment with who you really are and not, not the habits that you've developed as you've gone through the rough and tumble game of life where we all get a lot of bruises, bumps, and develop a lot of habits that are really unhealthy. But underneath that is who we really are. And so addiction, in a way, is kind of an innocent attempt to find true serenity, to, to find that peace of mind, that core of our being. So it's not a failure. Carl Jung, the famous psychoanalyst, once said that, that in his estimation, alcoholism and other addictions were the innocent attempt at union with God at an unconscious level. And that they sought outside of themselves something that was within them. And that the only cure, he said, for addiction was a spiritual awakening, transformation of consciousness, either through a religious experience, close contact with friends, or through an education of the mind beyond the confines of mere rationalism. And that's what the three principles are all about, an education of the mind, not intellectual understanding, an insightful understanding of the mind and how it works. And that's what leads us back home to who we are. I love the Wizard of Oz story. Frank Baum wrote that as a story for his children. Traveling salesman, he would write stories. And then when he came home on the weekends, he would tell the stories to his kids. And he had always been searching for his fortune and making fortunes, losing fortune. He was always a genius who kept failing in business. And the one thing that made him a wealthy man was the Wizard of Oz. And as it became a, a play in children's books and sold millions and millions of copies all over the world. But that story is a story of people looking outside of themselves for courage, like the lion, or a brain, like the tin man, or um, what was the other one? The, the tin man for a heart. And Dorothy was looking to go home. She wanted to go home. And in the end, the wizard said, oh, what you've been looking for all along was already within you. You demonstrated lion the courage when you fought off the, the witch and brought her broom back. And, uh, you know, he just, and he said, and Dorothy, uh, home is where your heart is. You, you've never left it. It's always been within you all along. That's what Sid Banks was pointing to. We have within us everything we've always searched for. It's inside. Beautiful, Joe. Thank you. I can imagine that would be so hopeful and helpful for, for people listening as I you are someone who is in a relationship with someone who has an addiction or you are the person with the addiction. It can be very easy to feel as though there's something broken in you or something fundamentally flawed or missing. And that that is why. And until you somehow fix that, it's either impossible or or difficult for things to change. But to know that that is there and it's been sitting there and you've just been innocently looking for it the whole way along just perhaps looking in the wrong direction is an, an innate innocence in you and the people around you that's just a beautiful and calming and hopeful place for people well it's a beautiful well-said summary you said it better than i did i think <laughs> And I love what you were saying about, about Carl Jung, that 
our misguided attempt to connect with God. I totally agree with you. And I, and I think as well that if we were just to step outside from the addiction realm for one second, we are doing that all day long anyway. As human beings, we have many misguided attempts to connect with that greater level of consciousness, that, mm. that sense of oneness, that unity. We go looking for that. And, and for many of us, myself, very much so, we get very addicted to overthinking because we think by thinking a lot, we're going to find a way through the maze. We all do it in different ways anyway. Yeah, if I can just find the perfect dress or the perfect car or the perfect girlfriend or the perfect job or the this or that, and you get it, and then, oh, God, this is it. Mm. And then that fades because it's not, it didn't come from that. It came from you thought it was that. And because of the power of thought, you remove the barriers of your thinking oh, now I found it. And then the feelings naturally come to the surface of serenity or well-being. But it's, it's conditional. Well, I don't like that shirt anymore. I need another one. And then you're a shopaholic, you know, it's looking for the best thing or the best person or the best job or the decor of your house. That doesn't feel right. I don't feel good until I can get it remodeled. It's just so many ways we cover up that feeling. The subtitle of my book is Thriving in the Eye of the Hurricane, Uncovering Our Resilience in Turbulent Times. So it's an uncovering. I think that's a beautiful segue into your book because you've written six books. I often refer Joe's books to my clients, The Serenity Principle. I've, I've referred to many, many people and Slowing Down to the Speed of Love. I just, I love the title of that book. I love the implication of it. Just the title alone really impacted me because... I saw that as I, I looked in the direction of this understanding, I saw that, I saw love. I saw how fast everything had been going, that moments were not moments, they were just blurs. And as I slowed down, I saw it. I saw the beauty in things. My sense of smell changed, colors were brighter, my senses were heightened. And I'd read your book before I'd profoundly seen that. And so I read your book hoping to see that, but of course, you know, it you only have, works on insight. So yeah, the book, it's not in the book. It led me down that path of actually seeing the truth of that statement, slowing down to the speed of, of love. That is what occurs when, when you slow down, when your thinking slows down, when you are more present, when you see the truth of who you are, all the things you've been talking about here, that's what's present is love. It's not something that you find out here or that you develop skills around. You actually see what's already been there. And I just found that so beautiful. So please tell us about your latest book, Joe. So it's called Thriving in the Eye of the Hurricane, Uncovering Our Resilience in, our, in These Turbulent Times. The book is, a I think of it as an accumulation of my life's work because I've worked in a lot of different, many, many different areas. This book is a book that is about the nature of resilience, that it's something that we're all born with, that you can't destroy it, you can't tarnish it, because it's spiritual, it's your essence, it's the life force that lives in the body, that's indestructible. But it can be covered up innocently with thought in the moment, because the more we think in habitual negative patterns, the more we cover up our awareness of resilience. 
So the cure or the, the secret to unveiling and realizing and re-realizing your own resilience, which is a positive feeling of love, peace of mind, creativity, innovation, recreating your life. It's just an amazing resource that we all have, you can't lose. But when you understand the mind, you're, you're able to, like the clouds passing, you see there's the sun. It's hidden, but it's not gone. The process of transformation, which is realizing our true self, our true identity, it occurs gradually over time again and again, but it's an ongoing evolution of one insight at a time, realizing and taking away more and more of our habitual thinking and allowing this resilience to shine through. The book is about giving people hope that I too can find my resilience, regardless of the circumstances that we're in. Oh, that's beautiful, Joe. That sounds, that sounds incredible. Well, I really just want to thank you so much for your time and how much you've generously shared with everybody. I can only imagine for people listening how helpful and hopeful what you've had to say is for them. So thank you so, so much, Joe. Well, you're a great interviewer. You should do this professionally. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. You do. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. I will provide links to Joe's website and his books, including his new book, which is coming out in October this year and is available for pre-order now in the show notes of today's episode. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Relatable, where we are committed to taking the stress and confusion out of relationships. If you're keen to find out more, the best place to start is to head on over to my website, fionalukies.com.au, where you can download my free Relationship Masterclass video series or join the waitlist for Relatable, my brand new online program where I personally take you through how to have a great relationship with anyone.